KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now let's get to it. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the focus is on college athletes. They generate billions for the NCAA. I used to see my jersey in a bookstore selling for $115. It would have been nice to receive some kind of compensation at some point. So should they be able to earn cash off their popularity? California says yes, and a dozen states, including Pennsylvania, could follow suit. They could actually make a nice living. They are being constipated. They got a scholarship. They also have facilities. We dig in. Then the scramble to find a temporary home for displaced Philly students sparks ire. In the face of challenging situations, people don't submit resignations. They fix the problem. Philadelphia school's leader lays out the plan for Ben Franklin High. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is college athletes. California recently passed the Fair to Play Act that allows college players to hire agents who can secure sponsorship and business deals. Since then, other states have followed suit. A bill was even introduced in Pennsylvania. The overall goal is to push the NCAA to change its rules about amateur nature of college sports. But there is major pushback. So the question is, should co-ed athletes be able to cash in? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Professor John Allgood. He's academic director of the Executive Masters of Sports Business Program at Temple University. We also have Preston Brown. He is the coach of the football team at Woodrow Wilson High School in Camden. And finally, we have Pennsylvania State Representative Melissa Schusterman, who represents parts of Chester and Montgomery counties. She's currently working on a bill similar to California's Fair to Play Act. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I want to start with you, um, Representative Schusterman. What is the problem that bills like the Fair to Play Act seeks to solve? Currently, students could receive a partial or full scholarship for their athletic ability. Um, but many of them, there's a gap. They they need to get a job at a pizza shop. They, you know, babysit. Maybe they give lessons. And this uh, bill will allow them to monetize their social media as they sleep, to possibly swing by a local car dealer and do a ribbon cutting and get paid for their appearance because they're a local homegrown hero. So I think it's very important to keep the stress of of feeding themselves and other expenses away from um, these incredibly talented athletes that aren't necessarily having every bit of their college experience paid for, either by their families or by um, their scholarship. Yeah. And I want to go to you, Professor. You think that this type of bill that allows athletes, student athletes to make money isn't always the best thing and tell me why well it's it's larger than and i appreciate what the representative said of trying to help these student athletes because a lot of them are on partial scholarships and they come from families that can't afford to pay however this type of bill is just not as simple as that 
there's uh, unintended consequences that come from it. So it really, it, once you do a sweeping bill like this, it has to, you start talking about Division One athletes and you start talking about major college football players or major college basketball players. All of a sudden, you have a Jalen Hurts at Oklahoma or a Tua at Alabama that can end up making millions of dollars off sponsorships. And then that could create a, a competitive imbalance for certain schools, right? Because if you look at it, and I think Coach will probably agree with me. Usually, if you look at the top 25 every year in college football, there's usually 20 in the last 30 years that are in the top 25. They are the halves. They're the ones that are always – they have the most resources. They are probably the only athletic departments that are actually making profits because 80% of athletic departments across the country in Division One do not make money. They have to be subsidized by the university to, make, uh, to take care of it. So it really turns into a competitive imbalance. Then it turns into who can, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, how dirty is it going to get? Yeah, and, and Coach, I mean, we're going to come back to this issue and dig in more. But, Coach, what's the reality with most athletes? Because not everybody's at these big schools, and but they do need money. I was on full scholarship, but I was still broke. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we was trying to work at the pizza shops, you know, in your non-competitive seasons. Or, you know, I worked at the post office in the summer, like, overnight while I was taking classes. So I understand, but when I became a starter, I used to see my jersey in a bookstore selling for $115. It would have been nice to receive some kind of compensation at some point. I do still agree that being paid takes away from the amateurism, but I think that some kind of like compensation should happen for guys maybe upon graduation. Like You know that there's a, a pool of money that could be coming to me. Because, again, if you're somebody like me, I'm in the Hall of Fame at Tulane. But I didn't get drafted into the NFL, you know, but I had a great college career. You know, what if you're, you know, Dewan Wagner, who's a friend of mine who played one year at Memphis, then you go to the NBA, and then you get injured, and you don't have a long career. Or if you're one of those top college athletes that you don't make it to the NFL. There, there are tons of guys who have great college careers yeah. and never become professionals and then – you're like how I was when you get cut and you're 21 years old and you 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 thought you had a plan that was a plan B, but then you're literally like going through some mental health issues because you're struggling. And we're going to come back to you, Coach, because this is a this is a big issue because yeah. I mean there are a lot. I mean there are schools that make money <laughs> off of these kids. Shouldn't you be able to earn some money off of your well, your athletic abilities? I, but. I agree. I think right now we we call it amateur athletes, but even if you're not going to a top 10 school, but you are recruited and given a partial or full scholarship, you've been practicing since you were five years old. You've been investing in this Mm. and your roommate is able to monetize their likeness. Uh, to make, you know, on social media, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Facebook. That's just one area. Why should you be excluded from that? And when we talk about it being amateur status, there are organizations um, surrounding this that are in the billions of dollars of what they're making off of broadcasting, off of, you know, your likeness in video games. So let's not forget that people are already monetizing. But would would it also hurt, and and the professor had a point, I mean, would it also hurt some of these college programs that don't, that aren't the big name schools? Well, in due respect to um, the professor, I agree. When you get at the top and there's six people that really are going to make in the millions, that could be an issue. But when I look at this piece of legislation, I'm drilling all the way down to the 
the hometown hero that's the weightlifter. Here she is only known in that town. And they could choose to give lessons and actually make a nice living. Yes, maybe we're going to have some conflict at the highest level. But I always like to bring up this one other thing. There's a lot of kids that aren't lucky enough to go to Temple Sports Management Program where they know they're going to be placed in jobs. And they come out and they don't have anything to do. If we actually have a new industry, a new vertical in people's small towns throughout Pennsylvania where they can do sports management and help the lacrosse player, help the famous bowler, help promote them as a sports manager, aren't we helping create a a new workforce? And and Professor, I mean, does it make sense? I mean, most athletes do not fall within those big name schools. And would this help them? No. If I'm on the outside, right, and I'm a sponsor, I'm not going to sponsor someone unless they are, like you said, hometown, right? The equestrian rider is not going to get anything. The, the track and field person is not going to get anything because there's no value to it. There's no value to sponsoring that. Where's the value proposition? Well, it depends. Some of these kids mm-hmm. have 500,000 followers on Instagram. Right. And they could possibly, by wearing a T-shirt from a local T-shirt shop, get likes and people buy these T-shirts that, that they wear because on the court. Okay, you're still talking about a few people, though. You got to remember how many athletes are in Division One or Division Two or Division Three. You're still only talking about that person you said has five hundred thousand followers. Mm-hmm. How many are there? Well, there's not many of them. That's what I'm saying. If you pass this bill, it's too sweeping. My point is, there's got to be. I love the graduation thing. If you could tie in something with graduation, that makes sense. If you're selling your jersey and there's revenue being driven by that, that makes sense. Otherwise, it's too sweeping. It's too broad. Way too broad. Should there be rules and restrictions on this? And could agents possibly take advantage of students, athletes like yourself at that time? I mean, you you can consider it in a number of different ways. Like if I'm a college or university, especially in California, right, you have some of the best universities out there in college football. So now that becomes a different recruiting pitch Mm -hmm. to other players around the country. So if I'm in a state like Alabama or if I'm LSU or I'm one of the Florida schools, I need to push my legislation to get that through because we have some of the best players in the country and we don't want them to leave. We want them to come play for us. So it does create some some sort of dichotomy amongst Mm -hmm. different universities because of that competitive nature. And everybody's in the business of making money. Let's not forget that. (laughs) The football programs, the basketball programs, they're in the business of making money. If you were on Instagram on your own, you went instant, like you went live. And I'm using my own likeness to give instructions on something and get paid for it. I don't really see that a problem. See, when I was in school, Facebook was just getting started. So Instagram and all the social media, it wasn't as huge. Like, times have adjusted and changed somewhat. And, I mean, there are people who are homegrown that attend Rowan, and they're super popular. There's a network of people in every level of sports that could really thrive off of this because if you're playing Division three football or basketball, the chances are you're paying for college. You're not on scholarship, yeah. but you're still governed by the NCAA rules and regulations. I mean, and currently, I mean, if even if this bill becomes law here in Pennsylvania, the NCAA doesn't have to change its rules, does it? Then that's another hurdle to go um, after. And let's be honest here. The NCAA is making a lot of money off of a certain sector of the athletes. And the world has changed. We have multiple platforms to promote yourself. So if I play a sport and my roommate doesn't, my roommate could be monetizing in their sleep. 
with their Instagram and Facebook. Why can't I do the same? I, you know, I work hard. I'm a good student. I just need to make that kind of spending money or money for food. Um, and I agree, Professor, that, you know, we're, we're going to encounter some predators with, um, yeah. you know, basically um, being the person that represents some of these elite athletes. But that's already happening now with That's funneling true. these, um, you know, college athletes to different schools mm-hmm. or coaches as they're on their way up to that, you know. So um, I think it's a great opportunity to open it up for someone like you. If you could go back in time, go back to Tulane and build a following on different social media and be able to, on your YouTube channel, show someone how to throw a ball. Going back to the professor here, because you made the argument that it changes the amateur nature of the entire athletics sport system. Well, if you if you base it on what the NCAA says, so the reason why California passed this bill was to confront the NCAA to change the rules, which they haven't done, and which they may not right. ever do. And so now yeah. we have what a dozen states that have put this are thinking about putting this forward. So that means yeah. what's going to what they're really doing is they're, they're telling the NCAA you have to change the way the amateur policies are, so these athletes can get compensation in some way. So that's that's the purpose of this because the NCAA could take the tact to say, all right, California schools, you can only play California schools if you want to stay in the NCAA to penalize them because yeah. then all of a sudden you take away their broadcast rights and you start taking away you know the the attractability of a game. They could do the same thing to Pennsylvania. I don't think they will, but they could like get punitive and say, okay, if you're going to go that route, then we're going to go this route. Then that's again unintended consequences. Do we start seeing conference realignment? It's not as simple as let's pass this bill and we're going to pay players. There's all these other things that are going to happen. But, from but it. the universities, and this is the thing, the universities are not paying the players. You're not really getting paid to play, per se. We got to defy amateur. It doesn't matter if the university's paying them or a sponsor's paying them. According to the NCAA, you cannot receive additional compensation from anywhere. So it doesn't matter. But already the NCAA is making money off these athletes. So they're already not amateur athletes. But, they're college athletes. But, but, Yet they're not able to bring um, money in based on their jersey, on their likeness in a video game, on their broadcast rights, on those promos. They're already acting like professionals. They have to have media training. And once again, I'm talking about the elite of the elite. Media training, they're filming promos, they're doing additional travel um, they're not being compensated. For they that. are being compensated. They got a scholarship. They also have facilities. They also have food. They also get to register early. They also have books and all these things. They are getting compensated. Right. But if you look, if you compare on the investment to the student, to the investment to the coach, it's, it's huge. And Coach Brown, I mean, you went through this. Is that enough compensation for the sacrifices you make? You can look at it a number of different ways. I grew up in a poor family, right? My Myself, I went to Tulane. My older brother went to University of North Carolina. And my other brother went to Drew. My mom didn't have to pay a dime. We grew up in the projects. And there's a lot of kids like that. Mm-hmm. But again, my mom put me on a Greyhound bus with $80 in my pocket with no cell phone at, at 17 years old and said, hey, son, do the best that you can, but don't come home empty-handed. That was it. So, I mean, I'm not opposed to grinding through it, but there has to be some middle ground to help student-athletes out because, yes, Tulane costs over $70,000 a year to attend there. I would not have been able to attend without a scholarship. That's true and correct, even though I had really good grades in high school. On paper, it looks perfect. 
like, oh, you got this full ride, you know, you get to eat in the meal plan. But I mean, when the when when the cafeterias closed at nine p.m., I mean, I'm still in the dorm hungry. You know, if I don't have money, <laughs> you know, I still get my student athletes that I sent off to college who are on scholarship that ask me to cash app them twenty five bucks so they can buy pizza. I mean, they're at major colleges and universities right now. Yeah, Michigan, Temple, Rutgers. And they're asking me for 25 bucks. And I just want to say, people <laughs> act like, this is not easy being nah. a college. I mean, no, you no. are grinding. Oh, yeah. Some of these schools are making more than the $70,000 versus scholarship money that they're giving. So, the, I mean, the, the return on investment is ridiculous in some of these cases. And so, Professor, what do you say to the kid who's literally hungry at night and he can't even, like, use his 500,000 Instagram followers to make a couple bucks to buy pizza? Well, I, I'm for figuring out how to compensate him. I'm just saying this isn't the right way to do it. So I just think there's too many unintended consequences that come from this bill. So I believe, I agree with you. They need they need extra compensation. I just don't think this is the way to do it. Yeah. And so, um, um, Rep, should there be more fleshing out? I mean, because right now the Pennsylvania bill is sort of what California has done. Should there be more thought put into this and find a better way to sort of provide to fill the gap that Coach uh, Brown is, is referring to? Well, the beauty of getting a bill into law is it is fleshed out. Mm. It's fleshed out through, in the House where I reside. It's fleshed out in the Senate, and then the governor must sign it. So the beauty is it, there will be amendments yep. put with this bill as it's fleshed out. I look forward to bringing you know the thought leaders that I'm meeting doing these uh, media appearances to Harrisburg to educate the legislators of all the perspectives. And that's usually where amendments or um, different aspects of the bill grow. This has been an issue that has constantly come up. Does the passage of these bills, the dozen states that are looking at this, does it at least kind of force the NCAA to deal with this issue? Well, the NCAA for sure is having more conversations about it in closed corridors than they were in the past. Whether the NCAA wants to act in any kind of immediate fashion, they're more than likely going to have to because they're in the business of making money as well. If you look at California alone, you got USC, UCLA, and Stanford. They're all in the Pac-12. And if those three decide to, to leave the Pac-12, that's a lot of money and a, a lot in three major universities. I think there could be something sort of like how the government has placed of um, – a minimum wage, so to speak, you know, because the kid that goes to Shippenburg should still be entitled to get some money. And the kid that goes to Penn State, because they're at Penn State, they shouldn't get like a huge amount more. And then on the back end, if your name and likeness has generated, you know, more funds upon graduation or release from the university, you should be able to get what sort of money like your parents would put away in a trust for you or something. Most kids don't make it to the pros. And this is their time. And shouldn't they be able to, for all those years, shouldn't there be some opportunity for you to make some of that back? Because you may not make it to the pros. Well, isn't, isn't that called a degree, though? You, you get a scholarship to get a degree. That's a lot of work, though. And especially it, if they're it, making but, millions but, off your back. But, literally but off your back. But they're not, though. That's what I'm trying to explain to you. They're not. That Most universities make the most of their money in athletics off a broadcast agreement with the conference, not with the NCAA. So if you're in a certain conference like Temple's in the American Conference, that deal's cut between the American Conference and whatever ESPN, I yeah. think. Yep. 
Then billion the, dollar the, deal, though. But then the conf- okay, but wait though. But then the conferences turn around and they disperse that to the universities. The universities then use it mostly for facilities. And by the way, they pay for the scholarships. It's not waived. The athletic department has to pay the university for the tuition, for the books, and all that stuff. Facilities, the training table, where you know the, where they live. That all is paid for by the athletic department and or the university if the athletic department's not making any money. But everyone's forgetting the um, different revenue through advertising and broadcasting, likeness in video games. We're forgetting a very large market. Video games, social media, promos, commercials. Many universities do a very good job promoting their football or basketball team to get other students there to fill out their anthropology department, to fill out their communications department, really on the backs of those athletes. But I want to drill down. You had mentioned earlier that, you know, an equestrian would never be famous in or, or be able to make money. In my area, Chester County, equestrian would definitely um, be well-known um, and uh, desirable. People would like to learn their techniques. So I think I, it's I, Again, I think I, – I disagree with both of you what you're saying, and, and please explain it to me. The bill says it's a sponsorship. It has nothing to do with lessons. No, no, but we're talking about social media. People monetize YouTube, and YouTube it can be a how-to. Facebook can have video and be a how-to. But how is that a sponsorship, though? That, I'm, I'm not understanding. Well, it is because a lot of times you're creating like a, sh- um, a show or a series. That a sponsor. That can be spot. It could be sponsored by a, okay. a tennis ball um, maker mm. or it can be sponsored by a, a, a Dick Sports um, or a local pizza shop could sponsor it. This is one of my last questions before I wrap up. Does it make athletes then targets for you know, greedy agents. You could see young young athletes getting played in some ways. You know, whether this bill passed or not, they're already getting played because, you know, agents take them in. Like, for example, I can tell my own story. You know, I signed with an agent. You know, I was projected, you know, to be like a fifth, sixth-round draft pick. But I refused to leave Tulane in my last semester of college with four classes left before graduation to go train in Arizona. I just trained at the school, you know, the same place, you know, because I didn't want to take, you know, $30,000 from the agent and be in debt because I didn't have any money. And Mm -hmm. I I didn't want to be like, okay, if I don't get drafted or, you know, how am I going to pay this money back? So I was fine not getting, you know, some fancy rental car and all this other stuff. And I had a baby in college. So I was like, look, I'm just going to stay here at school. I'm going to train the same way. But it, it backfired on me, you know. And all those dudes that came out with me, like all those dudes are in hundreds of thousand dollars of debt. Like their first year or two contracts that they made, they were paying the agent back like thirty on a dollar. Mm. So this 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 thing right here, you know, it could it could be something where literally we they could work with the with the business departments of each school and help kids create their own personal LLC to protect their own likeness and image and kind of do a teaching thing. So that as you prepare outside of, yeah. you know, graduation or, or things like that, that it could help you in that way. And, you know, universities, whatever you want to call it, departments, like they're making money in a lot, in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I play with a lot of guys that got drafted. Uh, you know, I played with J.P. Lossman, Weldy Moore, Matt Forte. And, like, I remember all of us, like, yeah, sleeping on the couches. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, doing all those different things, you know, working hard, you know, counting dollars to, just to go get smoothies from Smoothie King, you know, trying to see how many bucks <laughs> yeah. you had left on your, uh, we used to call them green bucks at Tulane. But, like, those are real. Like, and they build character, don't get me wrong, over time. And you think about those things, but it could have been nice to have a little compensation of some sort. Especially upon graduation yeah, and if, 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 if the draft doesn't happen for you. And so I just want to say, because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. What will it take for the NCAA to relent and give me a vision of what it'll look like if, if they do? I personally have a, a very positive vision around this. There is more stress on college students now. There's food insecurity uh, for a lot of college students. gives them the economic freedom. And all they're asking for is reimbursement for their likeness. They're already being monetized. They want to have a part of that game. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's too complicated uh, to figure out in one bill. Your question was about the NCAA. They're going to have to do something. Yeah. They're going to have to change something. Uh, I just don't know what it's going to be, and I don't think it's going to be resolved by this bill. I think the NCAA, they're most definitely going to have to – you know, alter some of the ways that they view this. And I think there's something that can be done. You get the best minds around and you figure it out. But there's a lot of poor, broke athletes that come from poor, broke backgrounds that go to college on scholarship. And, you know, they may graduate. Some of them don't. And you have nothing to fall back on. It's a shame. To John Allgood, to Coach Preston Brown, and to Representative Melissa Schusterman, thanks so much for being on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, after a week of scrambling, the Philly School District lays out their plan for Ben Franklin High. It's important now to get children back to some normalcy. The changes made that'll give the schools a plan B going forward. We'll be right back. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One on One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets residents in our region hot under the collar is closed schools. And this week, the School District of Philadelphia made headlines after announcing that Ben Franklin High School would be closed until the new year because of asbestos and construction delays. Now, town hall meetings for parents got heated. But there's good news. There is a plan. And after missing 11 days of school, students will be back in class on Monday. Superintendent Dr. William Height is here in the KWW studios to lay it all out. Dr. Height, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's been quite a week. It's been quite a week. Lay out the plan for me. What will happen with the students of Ben Franklin and SLA? So we have um, finalized a set of recommendations, mm-hmm. and those recommendations uh, came from the task force. And the recommendations are that on Monday, October 14th, Ben Franklin students and staff will relocate to 926 West Sedgley Avenue. This site was selected because of its close proximity to Ben Franklin and to the Broad Street line and because it has the capacity to house the entire school in mm-hmm. one place. Mm-hmm. The SLA student, Science Leadership Academy, mm-hmm. students will pursue a center city campus model where students will relocate to the School District of Philadelphia headquarters building at 440 North Broad. 
And we are finalizing details with Rodef Shalom at 615 North Broad Street. Mm -hmm. And so this model was selected because of the close proximity to SLA, the Broad Street line, and current internships that many of the students at SLA already have. And so those students generally travel to and from school on a daily basis, participating in internships because that's a part of that model. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they needed to remain near Center City. There have been rumors floating around that some of the folks at Rodef Salam didn't know about this. And how's that Yeah, so we we actually have been in constant communication with them, Mm -hmm. have had site visits with them as well. And even in earlier conversations with staff this morning, Mm -hmm. we're trying to finalize details and, and we're optimistic that we can get those details finalized. I mean, and it, we we didn't mean to jump the gun on communications, but it was important to let our families know where they, uh, where children will be going. And so we are optimistic that we will finalize a deal with Rodev Shalon, um, and to be able to use spaces in that in that facility as well. Yeah. So you kind of explain the logic behind and just laying out the little, little plan, but the Ben Franklin kids have to travel. Like a, a number of like three miles or so to nor a nor, new North Philadelphia location where sure. the SLA kids get to stay relatively close, and could you just pinpoint that logic? Yeah, there? I mean, I think that what's important here is that we had identified mm-hmm. two other sites for both yeah. of these schools, Strawberry Mansion and South Philly, and, South and there was like no, and yeah. there was uh, a negative reaction to mm-hmm. those to, to those two sites, and so we then formulated a task force of individuals that consisted of staff members from both schools, students from both schools, parents from both schools, mm-hmm. administrators from bo- both schools, along with district staff, and then those individuals then came up with other options because, quite frankly, we had a little more time yeah. to find more options. Uh, to utilize, and so those options included a variety of of um, of places, mm-hmm. and so there were a lot of site visits to those places, and it was once the Ben Franklin staff mm-hmm. visited with the uh, the site on nine twenty six West Sedgley, they said, "We want to come here, yeah, and we want to come here because our children already take the Broad Street line. This is close to the Broad Street line, and they they were." They were um, very focused on making sure that all of the children were in one place. What happened here? I rarely see you sweat, but this seemed like it was a scramble with the school district. What happened? Yeah, it was a scramble. I mean, so we have a $37 million project to improve the conditions and improve the learning conditions at Ben Franklin for the Ben Franklin students and for the Science Leadership Academy. Mm -hmm. We chose Ben Franklin because that school was half empty. Yeah, And we chose to move SLA into that building because we were paying for a space for SLA. It was a uh, uh, 18-month project. Part of that project included the abatement of asbestos, mm-hmm. about 100,000 square feet of floor tiles, and then um, all of the piping covering that was unexposed was also taken out. And then as we were coming to the final phases of the project, we had a boiler room. Yeah. Where there was asbestos, but that asbestos was behind another material. And it wasn't until that other material was damaged, then then we recognized or staff recognized that it was asbestos there. Mm-hmm. And so based on that and um, a lot of start and stops on this project once school started, I chose to 
not send children back to that building until construction is complete. Mm-hmm. And it's about three more. It's about three months left for construction mm-hmm. there. And I didn't want other places to be potentially damaged as a part of the completion of construction that mm-hmm. would then release asbestos fibers into the school. I would also add that we then conducted a lot of tests in that building, o- over 100 tests, mm-hmm. um, and tested stairwells, elevator shafts, common spaces, classrooms, hallways. And uh, with the exception of the boiler room, all of those tests came back below standards. Um, and so, but in an abundance of caution, did not want to put children back into that, bu- children or staff back into that building and then have other materials damaged and then it would and then we would have to disrupt once again yeah. the students' education. Was this the first time during the 18-month construction project that asbestos was, like, released while students were in the building? We don't have evidence that it was released while children were in the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in the boiler room that was contained and sealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of the tests occurred outside of the boiler room. Just with to make children, sure. With, just to make sure. Mm-hmm. And all of those tests came back below standard. So mm-hmm. there's no evidence that uh, asbestos was released mm-hmm. uh, into the environments where children were or staff uh, were. But there are a lot of lessons we learned on yeah. this project. And we, we had another project, a renovation of Dobbins High School, mm-hmm. um, which was a $50 million project mm-hmm. that also occurred while children continued at Dobbins. We had the Mayfair School that had renovations while children attended that school. We, are currently, we currently have Solace Cohen, who is getting a new school built right in the middle of its campus, um, and children are still attending that school. So we've done these types of projects before. Um, we dramatically underestimated the the scope of this project over six floors while two different schools were trying to occupy the building. And uh, for that, I offered my apologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important now to get children back to some normalcy mm-hmm. and back into these places. And then once construction is complete, we hope by the end of the calendar year, these children will be able to move back into um, their home, which is the Ben Franklin SLA campus. Yeah. You guys do this, obviously. Was there a plan B? We always were planning for in construction to continue while children were occupying the building mm-hmm. um, because we've done that in other places. Uh, we have swing spaces that we've now identified and we're making available because of construction or other, any other emergency, a power failure, yeah. no heat, or or other things that are outside the school's control. If those things happen, now we are identifying other places and getting those places ready so that they are ready at the moment's notice to move children to, whether it's an elementary school or another high school. So basically this incident has caused the school district to shift the way it does things. Absolutely. And and I will add, I think the, the other thing that's important is that before now, we really haven't thought about the targeting resources that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we've been trying to be focused on addressing lead paint, yeah, uh, asbestos, mold, um, and uh, buildings that have had deferred maintenance issues for, for years. years. Yeah, And so we've been trying to do that as quickly as possible to improve these conditions as quickly as possible to back up and say, okay, but if we're going to do that now, we also have to make sure that if we need to move students somewhere else, we can. 
Yeah. Um, and so we're identifying the resources to prepare these other spaces. Even if we don't have to use those spaces, they're going to be available. And we have spaces, we're identifying those areas around the city mm-hmm. so that if it's a certain geographical area, people will already know what that emergency site or plan B site will be. Yeah. And this is because there's probably going to be other construction sites and, and things, a lot more as we work to uh, prepare these buildings. So, Cherry, I mean, that's an important point. Yeah. So in 2013, our capital spend was $26 million. Yeah. Our capital spend now is $422 million. And so and that, that's likely to only increase given all of the things that we have to do mm-hmm. with these facilities. Mm-hmm. And so with that, you have to also increase – you're not just increasing the dollars and increasing the work. You also have to increase the internal capacity to do this work. And so that's another thing that we've learned through this project that while we're rushing to try to do these things as quickly as possible – we also have to build our internal capacity to make sure these things um, go well. And then I have to switch gears a little bit because I've, I've heard from parents from both schools. And one and this is a culture issue. One of the things that I heard was parents felt like this was a have versus have nots. And and they felt like, for example, I'll give you a couple examples. They felt like neighborhood school kids get um treated differently from kids who go to magnet schools like SLA. They said, you know, students had a 9 a.m. meeting with the parents on Monday. SLA kids got to come after work. Their parents got to come after work. Um, they also said that, you know, the all the construction happened once everybody knew SLA was coming here. And the Ben Franklin kids have been complaining about this for years. W- what do you have to say to those parents who just feel like, you know, the Ben Franklin kids have been getting the shaft for years and now that more privileged uh, parents are involved everything kind of shifted and and the district is jumping on this. Yeah, no, I mean, so I'll go back to this project was done for Ben Franklin and for that campus. I mean, and so it was identifying a comprehensive high school where we could improve the learning conditions at that comprehensive high school Mm -hmm. um, that also had enough space to host another school. And that other school just happened to be SLA. With respect to the schedule, the meeting times, those times were scheduled at the direction of both principals. Okay. And so the principal of Ben Franklin actually said, we just had a back-to-school night, and the preference for my parents are morning meetings. And yeah. she, so she said that. And, and all of her staff would be around at that time. So she said, can you put our meeting first thing Monday morning? So and, parents, you hear that? Yeah, so so that, that, that was not us scheduling that meeting. Um, and I would also add that both and then the SLA school already had a home and school meeting scheduled for 530 that afternoon. We just shifted the location to the school district of Philadelphia. So that that was the meeting schedule. I yeah. mean, and that was we didn't we didn't arbitrarily do that because I would I would have thought that both meetings would need to occur after school as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was at the direction at, of both principals who said, for this reason, I need my meeting at this time. And the other principal said, for this reason, mm-hmm. you can just build on an already scheduled meeting that we were planning to have. We're just going to need a much larger space. And so, and we opened it to, we opened both meetings to both school populations. So people could have chosen to go to the to later meeting one. if Absolutely. they wanted to. And, and a lot of people did. Yeah. And so, th- so there is not a haves versus have not situation I, here. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, however, it is... So one of the things that we're trying to do and, and I've been trying to do for the past seven years that I've been here is to is to 
make investments in our mm-hmm. comprehensive high schools and make investments in our neighborhood schools um, because they become the defaults for children who aren't uh, selected into one of the special admission schools. Mm-hmm. And those schools need to have the programming options. That's why we've expanded things like career and technical education. We now have instrumental music in every K-8 school. It is why we have now AP AP testing and SAT prep and PSAT that's available to all students regardless of where they are. So what we've been trying to do is, is increase those investments in all places so that not so that the magnet school parents or students aren't the only ones with access to those opportunities. Yeah. But I will also say Ben Franklin has a completely different program as a comprehensive high school than SLA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Ben, someone said, do the ben, all of the SLA children have computers? Uh, do the Ben Franklin children have computers? Yes. They have their um, computer. There's a computer for every student at Ben Franklin the staff at Ben Franklin just chooses to use it a different way. So children don't take them home. They actually use them at school, but they all have access uh, to that technology, and that mm-hmm. will continue. It, it is a uh, a big issue about haves and have-nots. And, and, and that's the issue that keeps the parents kept absolutely, saying to me. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it's, an important, it's an important issue and an important consideration. Mm-hmm. But I want to come back to kind of how I started in terms of we're trying to improve um, the conditions at many of our schools. The $50 million renovation happened at Dobbins High School. Mm -hmm. The $37 million renovation happened at Ben Franklin High School. Those are not magnet schools or special selects. Dobbins is a career and technical education school. But these are – these, and, and we have another big renovation that is happening at Randolph Technical Center. Um, and But these are schools that serve populations that have not been historically special mm-hmm. admissions populations. And so part of, our, part of our focus has been trying to shift monies and to support schools and communities like Ben Franklin, Dobbins, Randolph, those types of places. Yeah, because one parent texted me. They said if— this was central. None of this would have happened. Are you hoping that these investments will change that kind of attitude or the way that they view the the neighborhood school, schools view themselves as undervalued within the school yeah, district? Yeah, I mean, I think yes. Uh, so we hope that this will. Central is another school that's actually under construction. Yeah. So there, there's a project going on at Central as we speak. I mean, and so that's another school that is under construction. Mm-hmm. Um, but the broader issue is that. We have 214 schools. Yeah. Um, and it's about 300 buildings. Yeah. 175 of those 214 schools have some have asbestos in them in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, but left undisturbed, that doesn't present a problem. Um, but we have to make sure that we are attentive to ensuring yeah. that these environments are safe and that we are adhering to federal regulations as it results to inspections every six months that we have to do on these properties. And when people suspect that they they have there's asbestos material in the schools, we have now mechanisms for them to report that yeah. for us to get out 
um, to those schools to investigate that as quickly as possible. Because Ben Franklin had had multiple reports of asbestos that's in right. the past. And so that's, that, right. that's no. So I want to shift gears again because people were very upset with you. Um, your contract was recently renewed. You're going to be here hopefully for a few more years. But they had called for your resignation. You said you don't have any, you know, you're going to be here. Um, what's your response to that? Just to, to be you, it kind of responded to those. Yeah, parents. I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a different response to yeah. that. I mean, I think, I, I think, look, people were people, rightfully so, mm-hmm. are annoyed, um, are hurt. Uh, children are children were hurt because um, they they wanted to start school. They wanted to be with their friends. Yeah. That, In the beginning, that, it was exciting. I, I, absolutely, yeah. and, that, yeah. and and yeah. that's actually where we want young people. Yeah. Um. And no one was uh, more frustrated than me on on this issue. But I wasn't gonna make, I wasn't gonna keep children or staff at risk, mm-hmm. um, risking mm-hmm. uh, some other exposure if in fact there was damage to an area that contained asbestos. So I felt like people were communicating their pain and I felt like people were communicating their anxiety and their anger and their frustration over an issue that they didn't cause. And I'm the one responsible. So I'm not surprised by um, those calls. But I Mm -hmm. I will say this, in the face of challenging situations, people don't submit resignations. They fix the problem. And I plan to fix this problem. And my my contract wasn't renewed recently. It was yeah. renewed several years ago, yeah. and it, it it expires in a, in a couple of years. But I, we're going to fix this problem. And I think, uh, by and large, we've had other construction projects that have gone well. Um, and we're trying to improve the conditions. And also want to acknowledge, though, that um, I understand people's frustration and pain around this issue. And I wasn't surprised that people were going to say, hey, hold somebody responsible, and it might as well be you. Yeah. Um, and so you should submit your resignation. And it's like, that's the last thing I'm going to do. We're going to fix this problem. Yeah. And um, so I know a lot of seniors are preparing to apply for college. Um, there have been nerves about, you know, scholarship deadlines and stuff like that. They were very, like, upset about missing these days of school. Is there going to be – folks available to help them with these tight deadlines that oh, are yeah. coming up? There have been folks all along to help them mm-hmm. with these deadlines. As a matter of fact, we have, we're still going on with PSAT and SAT testing next week um, That for both schools. Mm-hmm. It will be in the district headquarters uh, for all the juniors at both schools um, to make sure that they don't miss that opportunity. Um, many uh, young people are still submitting their college applications. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that because I've been writing reference letters <laughs> um, for right, lots yeah. of children. Um, and and I have to say the staffs at both schools have done an extraordinary job of making themselves available uh, to assist children. And we've had drop-in center, a drop-in center for both schools at the district headquarters. But uh, the staffs have done uh, an amazing job in a, yeah. set of, in, in a difficult set of circumstances making sure that the young people had what they need in order to mm-hmm. um, continue with their pursuit of college. Now, uh, I know there's going to be a plan to make up for these 11 days. Is it just going to be lopped onto the end or is mixed in, taken yeah, away some I mean, and that remains days? to be seen because, yeah. um, because both schools have different models, and, mm-hmm. and we haven't even gotten into inclement weather yet. So um, we have inclement weather days that are built in, and mm-hmm. we will have to see at the end of this process how we know we're going to have to make up some days and I don't think we're going to have to make up all the days because we surpass the number of hours that are required for high school students yeah. um, by PDE. 
And but I know we're going to have to make up some days, and and so we're looking early on at some professional development days mm-hmm. where children were going to be out, um, and teachers will be working. And now we're going to reverse some of those so that at these two schools, children will have to come on those. We are looking at what days we will need to add on and what waivers would we need what we might need to request from the Pennsylvania Department of Education. The original project. Um, was costing, as you mentioned, $37 million. Uh, now I understand it's going to be an additional 300000 plus or so dollars to rent the new locations. Are there additional financial, you know, burdens on this project? And are, is the district prepared for that? Yeah, I mean, we're prepared for that in our operating budget. And we will take that monies, we'll take those monies out of our operating budget to make sure um, – to, to make sure these young people are housed in, in um, safe environments until this project is complete. Uh, but we do generally have prepare for cost overruns on mm-hmm. projects like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll, have to, we'll also have to pursue some penalties based on timelines that were not met as well. Uh, t- penalties against the, the, the folks who are doing the yes. construction. Yes. Yeah, because I was wondering about that because I'm sure there had to be some discussion about timeline in advance and they didn't meet those timelines in some cases no yeah is there something being put in place to make sure that this january timeline is met yeah we think that um it will actually be finished before then we're Mm -hmm. giving ourselves ample time Mm -hmm. um to do that and it's a natural break and so because it's a holiday break so that we're not moving staffs and students over a weekend they will prepare for as they prepare for the holiday break to come back to a new location when they start the new year. How will the district work to rebuild the trust with parents? I mean, you have to work with parents. I mean, part of that was the formation of a t- this task force that included people from both communities. And that's another lesson learned. We can, when we have multiple voices in the room with multiple ideas and multiple recommendations, we come up with better solution. Yeah. And we have to find a way as a district to do that on more things um, and to include the voice of those that will be impacted in decision-making and the formation of a plan. This project was so exciting because students from both schools actually designed the school um, and they work with the architect to design the school. That's why I'm still very excited about the finished product here because it's going to be something that is really unique um, as, um, as a as a remodeling project for the Ben Franklin and Science Leadership Academy students. Well, I tell you one thing I'm looking forward to. I hope y'all have a big ribbon cut when this thing is all done and that this is this that you are able to accomplish all the things that were originally set out. So I want to say thank you so much to you, Dr. Hyde, for coming and being on Flashpoint and talking about this very po- important issue. In the sure. Sure. Thank you. Next up, they provide support for women after the battle of their lives. You know, try to make peace with our body. How a local nonprofit is helping patients live beyond breast cancer. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, and other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. And one local nonprofit is empowering those affected by breast cancer by connecting them with trusted information and community support this month in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. 
They're offering donation-based yoga sessions using heartfelt practices, as well as many other initiatives all year long. Here to tell us more is Living Beyond Breast Cancer board member and my friend Luann Khan. Welcome to Flashpoint. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really cool having you here. I know. I know. I'm, I appreciate you inviting yes. me. Yes. So for those folks who have never heard of Living Beyond Breast Cancer, please tell us what the organization does. Well, Living Beyond Breast Cancer is an organization that makes sure if you are diagnosed with breast cancer, you are not going to go through this alone. Mm. You have support and you have vetted medical information. You know, the one thing you don't want to do is go to Dr. Google When you have been given a diagnosis of breast cancer, you need information that you can rely on and then, in addition, get support Mm. from an organization that has been supporting breast cancer survivors since 1991, which is the year that I happen to have been diagnosed with breast cancer as a young woman. So I know what that's like and I know what it feels like to get that diagnosis. It's scary. But that's why Living Beyond Breast Cancer is there. And we have programs throughout the year to support you and your family. Yeah. And so tell us about some of those programs. So one of the things that's going on is every Wednesday for the rest of the month, you can go to Yoga for a Cause at the Underground Spa. And we have a great yoga instructor there. So you can come between 515 and 615. And it's free. Anything that you donate will go directly to Living Beyond Breast Cancer. Because that's sometimes people focus on that so much, but it's bigger. By being able to sort of congregate and be supported by other people dealing with this and do something active like yoga, it's very helpful. One thing that you feel when you're diagnosed with breast cancer is that everything's out of control. You feel like your body has turned against you, which it has. Mm -hmm. And You've got to find a way to make peace with that and with your body. And I find that exercise really helps with that. And yoga is a form of exercise that just brings us into the present, helps us not be overwhelmed, and giving your body support and do something good for your mind because we need that. We do Um, need that. You know, whether you're going through breast cancer or not, let's face it, life is hard enough, right? Yeah. And one of the things I know the organization for is the big event they have in May. Right. It's our big yoga event, uh, Reach and Raise, which I've been involved with for 10 years. And it's so powerful, Cherry, because we've got 2,000 people on the Art Museum steps. And we're all moving together as one. The amazing yoga instructor, Jennifer Shelter, is there. It doesn't matter if you've ever done yoga before. It's one of the most powerful things to stand together face the city, you know, in a warrior pose or a tree pose. And it just makes us feel like, again, we're not alone. And this is not just for survivors, but for families, for supporters, for anybody who wants to support those of us who've been through breast cancer or going through breast cancer. Yeah. And I know Living Beyond Breast Cancer also promotes prevention and breast health. Right. And early detection. So it is very important that We take care of ourselves by getting that checkup, but also for us to do breast exams once a month. That's how I found my breast cancer, and that's how a lot of women still Mm. find their breast cancer. If you have to be one of the one in eight who get breast cancer, let's get an early diagnosis. Yeah, and I have to say, you not only survived, but thrived following your breast cancer diagnosis. How'd you do that? 
Well, you know, it was really tough. It was just a few days after my 35th birthday. You've got to remember this before all the pink ribbons Mm -hmm. and all the awareness that we have today, right? I felt a lump in my right breast, and I went to a doctor who I trusted. She said, there's nothing on your mammogram. We don't see anything on your mammogram. And she felt the lump, but she said, I don't think it's anything. So I walked around with this thing for six months while it grew. Mm. And finally, there was a headline in the Philadelphia Inquirer that said young women were dying of breast cancer after having negative mammograms. And this thing kept growing. And my husband said to me, what is that thing? You're, you've been feeling it every night. you got to go check it out. And he said the one thing that saved my life. He said, you know your body better than anyone who sees you once a year. And it turned out it was an aggressive breast cancer. I had to have a mastectomy and chemotherapy and reconstruction. You know, my daughter at the time was three years old. I was terrified I wouldn't survive. But fortunately, we caught it still relatively early. I want anyone listening to understand mammography has improved dramatically since 1991. It is much better at seeing smaller breast cancers. We now have breast MRIs, if there's any question. That didn't even exist in 1991. And also, the medical community is now more aware, we're all more aware that young women can get breast cancer. Back in 1991, it was like, oh, no, this is an old woman's disease. And there really wasn't that kind of awareness that, no, young women were getting breast cancer. So a lot has changed. Yeah. Right. But we still don't have a cure. And women are still dying of breast cancer. And so be proactive, ladies. Be proactive. And men. And then be men, proactive. Men also, about 2,000 men a year in this country get breast cancer. Yeah. Take care of yourself. Be proactive. And so give us the website where people can check it out. Go to lbbc.org. It's simple. It stands for Living Beyond Breast Cancer because we know it's not just about the treatment. It's living beyond, right? So Living Beyond Breast Cancer, lbbc.org. You'll see the information about Yoga for a Cause, Reach and Raise, and all the other great events. Wonderful. So thank you so much to Luann Khan for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue. Thank you. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As former Secretary of State Colin Powell once said, a dream doesn't become reality through magic. It takes sweat, determination, and hard work. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.